0: So on our new website at expatmoney.com, I have put out a special report on getting a plan B residency and instant citizenships. I think that this is really important stuff and I want to get this into your hands straight away. You can grab it for free if you go to expatmoney.com and you'll see it right at the very top. All you need to do is just put in your name and email address. You're going to be able to access it instantly. There's no cost for it. I'm not selling anything. I just want you to get this information. You're going to be able to join my newsletter, you're going to be able to stay up to date with all all of the important work that we're doing at expat money and yeah it's going to be amazing so go to expatmoney.com grab the special report on getting a plan b residency or instant citizenship and enjoy read it it's important stuff i think you're really going to like it okay let's get into the interview Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikel Thorpe, and this is the Expat Money Show. Today's guest has a PhD in Applied Human Sciences from the University of Montreal and an MBA degree with a specialization in managing sustainability. Today, we will be discussing food autonomy and sustainable ecological living based on permaculture design. These are topics that I have wanted to discuss in more detail for several months now, so I am really excited about today's conversation. Please welcome to the show, Joseph L. Corey. Joey, how are you? Very
1: good, Mikael. Very good. Very happy to be with you this afternoon here in Montreal.
0: Yes, I am really excited about this conversation. I have been wanting to do more of this type of stuff for a while, and I think that it really fits in to my audience and what we discuss on the show, because so much of it has to do with personal responsibility. I mean, this show at the end of the day is always about freedom and with freedom comes personal responsibility. It's kind of the sister there. So why don't we just start with your backstory a little bit? How did you get into permaculture and why did you decide to take your career and your education and your expertise in this way?
1: Yeah, sure. So Born and raised in Beirut, Lebanon, did my undergrad in management for lack of better option at the time, 17, you know, it's like, uh, okay, what am I going to do? I don't know, just do business. And we'll take it from there. In 2001, when I finished my studies, like a lot of young Lebanese, not able to find a decent work back home. So a lot of us immigrate to Dubai and the Gulf region there. So I went to Dubai and I worked for nine years. The last role I had at the company, which is the American multinational Procter & Gamble. So I worked for them for nine years. The last role I had there was a key account director for the Gulf North Africa. And Pakistan overlooking their biggest client, which are the Carrefour hypermarkets. So, you know, I was really in the corporate career for for many years, living the high life uh, at the young age of 21, 22, really having a blast, thinking I was some kind of soccer star or rock star. And it was a lot of fun for a very long time, a lot of fun, except that after a while, I started feeling not too excited about the work anymore. It was difficult waking up in the morning and dragging my feet to the office, uh, wondering, you know, why it, it was that I was doing what I was doing at the time. And it felt weird because, you know, around me, people were saying, oh, you're super successful. You've got this amazing career, amazing job. You're driving like a Honda S2000, beautiful car. You just bought like a latest condo and the latest projects in Dubai. But within me, I wasn't that happy. I was kind of depressed. And I thought that was weird. You know, you're, you're so successful, but then you're not happy about it. So that's when in 2009 with my partner at the time, We said, okay, you know what? We need to kind of take a year off, kind of back up a bit and and see what we want to do with things and actually my mom is Canadian she's from Quebec and I had never really gotten to know my québécois family so I said you know what I've got a Canadian passport I'm gonna to go to Montreal always wanted to, to live in Montreal since I was a kid and I'll go back to studies I'll take a, a year off from work I'll study I'll do an MBA it won't be any time lost because you know I also really wanted to be on the beach for a year doing nothing but I had that kind of guilt trip you know you're always in the performance, performance. So I was like, I'll do an MBA. And during the MBA, I was like, okay, I'm not really learning anything new. I mean, everything that we're looking in textbooks, this is what I did at Procter & Gamble for nine years, you know? So I was really at a existential like crossroad, late 20s, early 30s. Like, what do I do with my life? Where do I go from here? And like, at the end of the MBA, I took this course. It was like an optional course called Corporate Social Responsibility. And for the first time, Somebody that's legit, not, not, a, not just a hippie, was telling me, look, like, you've got management experience, but, you know, you can use that for something good to improve society, basically. Like, corporations have responsibilities, you know, in the way that they impact society. And we can think about these things, you know, we can think around them. So I started diving into sustainable development, uh, social innovation, social entrepreneurship. Social entrepreneurship really was something that inspired me. And right after my MBA, as most of my colleagues were getting like high-end jobs in multinationals, I went to Africa for five months on an agriculture project in the middle of the Sahel region, like really in the middle of nowhere to work on this agricultural project. And I had never in my life planted a seed and that was kind of a revelation for me I was like where was I all this time I had never asked myself how does food actually grow like how do you go from a tiny seed to like a tree and like a whole bunch bunch of mangoes you know So that was really kind of very transformational experience for me in my life. And that's when I understood a lot of things that money isn't everything and material stuff can make you happy to a certain extent. But then there's like a diminishing returns in terms of happiness and, and, you know, having your own time, being able to have like control over your own life. And so, you know, all these existential things. And so finally I felt that I was getting somewhere in my quest for my inner happiness. And so when I came back to Montreal, kept studying in uh, managing, Sustainability. That was really my newfound kind of vocation. And so I came back from Africa looking at all these sustainability problems around agriculture. And at the same time, my partner, while I was in Africa, she was in Montreal, she came across permaculture. And so when I came back, I was talking about problems. And she was basically replying to me with potential solutions. So I was like, okay, wait a minute, like, what is this thing called permaculture design? It seems super innovative, yet it's not really new, I would say, in the history of mankind. I'm going to get into the details. So yeah, so this is when we said, you know what, why don't we go back to Africa, but we try to improve on those agricultural projects which don't seem to be sustainable. How can we improve them through permaculture design? And so we pitched this social business idea at Concordia University. They had like a academic competition around social businesses. And we won the first prize and we got a grant of $10,000 to go back to Africa and to keep working on that same project, but in a more sustainable way and working on permaculture. So to make a very long story short, we ended up co-founding the nonprofit organization called Gardens Without Borders. And so basically what we do, we basically promote permaculture design education here in Montreal around urban agriculture projects, but also across different countries in West Africa, Lebanon, Costa Rica, and Ecuador, where we have partners. And we've already in the past organized trips where we take a bunch of students here in Montreal in the middle of winter. They want to get away from winter. So do we. And then we go down to Ecuador and we we spend three months on a permaculture farm learning a bunch of things which is related of course to how can we grow food sustainably at the local level with minimum input in terms of financial investment and in terms of like you know infrastructure and technology but how can we really produce food in a sustainable way that's good for us and for our health for the ecosystem and and you know a kind of agriculture that can help regenerate ecosystems so it's the whole idea of working with nature Rather than working against nature, which our industrial agricultural system has tended to do, you know, since the 1950s, post-World War II, we've kind of been growing food in a way that goes against ecosystems and how they function and how they thrive. So how can we put agriculture again at the service of ecosystems and for everyone's benefit, for our health? for the health of the environment, and also to be able to generate local economies that are sustainable and that are thriving and that can really generate economic wealth and distribute it in an interesting way where everybody can benefit from it.
0: I love it. I appreciate your passion. And there's just a ton of things to break down in there. It's also very curious that you spent nine years living in the UAE. I spent eight years living in Abu Dhabi from 2011 till 2019. I was in Abu Dhabi. So maybe we were next door neighbors at the time. And I will be going to Lebanon for my very first time in a couple of weeks. Very soon from now, I go to Lebanon. So that's going to be an interesting trip too.
1: So what's taking you there?
0: Well, I have a big trip. I got a whole bunch of meetings. So I go to Turkey to for some meetings. Then I go to Rome for a mastermind, then Cyprus for more meetings. And then on the way back, I'm going to do a little stopover in Lebanon just because I've always wanted to go there. And then back to Panama. I'll be gone for three and a half, four weeks, three weeks, something like that. So I'm pretty excited about this. All right. So then let's get into what is permaculture i mean you described some of it here but maybe go into it a little bit more detail and explain like what does it include because it's not just fruits and vegetables actually there's a lot to it from my understanding
1: that's right so okay so let's start with the actual term permaculture it's actually a combination of permanent and culture the idea being can can human civilization are we able to design a way of organizing ourselves in, in society that can be such a good design, it's such a good way that we organize ourselves in terms of producing the things that we need to, to meet our basic needs in the most equitable and fair way for everybody. Can we achieve that in an optimum design? You know, so how do we produce? How do we distribute? How do we consume? And what do we do with waste? So, you know, all these basic functions of a society, permaculture poses the questions and says, is there a way to design this that is so optimal that we wouldn't want to change it, that it becomes a permanent way for society to function within the limits of the biosphere? So this whole idea that kind of an endless economic growth model growing the economy endlessly for hundreds and hundreds of years. There's a big question, Mark, like to what extent is that even possible? Because we've got limited resources. And at some point, it's not a question of resources finishing, but you might still have them, but it becomes so expensive to actually exploit them that it doesn't make commercial sense, economic sense. So then how do we find a way to live as a society, meet our basic needs, all together collectively within the limits, the natural limits of ecosystems and the environment. So is that even possible? And if it is possible, you know, what's the design thinking that's going to take us there? And that is permaculture. And of course, the first thing you got to think about is to say, okay, how do we feed ourselves as a civilization? So that's why permaculture is a lot about agricultural techniques, that can be called natural agriculture. Actually, it's the way that human civilizations grew food before the industrial era. So right before World War I and World War II, the majority of people on the planet for thousands of years, they grew food in a natural way. That's basically permaculture techniques for for, for growing food. So actually permaculture is not some kind of new innovation or invention. It's actually going back into ancestral knowledges to understand how they used to do things and to kind of be inspired from those techniques and saying, how do we adapt those techniques in 2022 so that we can grow food more sustainably?
0: Well, that all makes perfect sense. And the first thing that comes to mind when you say that is being down here in Latin America. I mean, I've been coming back and forth to Latin America for 20 some odd years. We live here now in Panama. I've seen a lot of times where Americans, Canadians, West comes down to Latin America and they want to do food processing the same way that they do it back home and they kick the local farmers off the land or maybe not kick off, maybe purchase at a reasonable price. I'm not I'm not saying that the local farmers are victims by any means. That's not my point. My point is that they have a lot of local knowledge from using the land for generations and doing it in a way which is not going to destroy the land. Now, I assume that there's a lot of techniques and there's things that I certainly do not understand about farming or producing food. But the first thing that comes to mind is the way that we do these massive row crops in North America for thousands and thousands of hectares of one type of crop opposed to maybe down here in Latin America, cycling through many different types of crops or having many different types of crops on one plot of land. Can you talk to us? First of all, am I correct in my beliefs or am I completely off basis? And if either or, please feel free to tell me I'm right or I'm wrong because I'm not sure here.
1: Yeah, you're you're definitely pointing in the right direction. So one of the first things we say when we're trying to compare permaculture design techniques with kind of more conventional industrial techniques, it's the whole idea to say, whereas industrial agriculture is very much based on monoculture, so rows of tomatoes like on endless uh, hectares, permaculture is about polyculture. So you're not going to grow just tomatoes. You're going to grow tomatoes with other varieties of vegetables and and possibly fruits that actually have a symbiotic relationship with tomato plants. So for example, we know that growing tomatoes and basil is a good like partner crop. It's a good polyculture because again, I'm not gonna necessarily get into the techniques of it because that's not my field, but we understand today, for example, in a forest that trees and plants communicate and exchange nutrients. So for example, in the forest, you're going to have the high canopy that gets a lot of sunlight that's going to transfer its excess energy through the mycelium, which are the roots of mushrooms, to other smaller bushes that don't get as much sunlight and need energy. And so forests auto-regulate themselves in this way. We understand this now. I mean, ancestral cultures understood this in their own way. Now, science is actually proving it. And so, for example, you're going to have the right nutrients which are exchanged between, let's say, tomato and basil, and going to help each of those plants to, to thrive better together. Also, the basil is going to act as a kind of repellent for certain insects that could attack the tomatoes. So, what we found actually is that when we take a natural ecosystem in all of its diversity, it's very resilient it really operates in an optimum way. So it produces a good quantity of a diversity of foods. And so, for example, if you had a a kind of insect that attacks just tomatoes, if you have hectares of land, just tomatoes, you're going to lose all your tomatoes. But if you have a diverse ecosystem, you might lose your tomatoes, but you're going to still be able to generate produce and possibly revenues from other crops that you're growing. So even from an economic standpoint, from a business model standpoint, it's more resilient. You better manage your risk when you have a, a diverse ecosystem. It's like diversifying your investment portfolio. You want to diverse the kind of crops that you're able to grow. And if you're able to do that without having to invest on chemical inputs, that's also interesting from a commercial standpoint, from an environmental standpoint, because you're not destroying the land. You're actually Working to rebuild it. And that's very important because one of the major ecological crises of our time is that we are losing top soil. And if you think about it, and I read this article, it really blew my mind. Because, you know, like we can think of the universe, the solar system, the planet, and we say, okay, you know, we as humans, you know, we're part of th- these systems, and that's what helps us to, to be able to live, right? To to create life on planet Earth. But if you think about it, actually, it's much more minute than this in the sense that. In order for us to live, we have that topsoil, you know? I mean, we can't live off growing food like at the core of the planet. It's just that topsoil which serves us actually. And then even in terms of the atmosphere, the only thing that serves us is that very thin layer of oxygen. So we're actually stuck between this very thin layer where if we damage one or the other, like we're not doing ourselves a very big favor. So topsoil, regenerating topsoil is fundamental if we wanna have a sustainable agricultural system. And kind of organic, natural techniques of growing food help us to regenerate topsoil rather than destroying it with chemical fertilizers and monoculture, which really is not sustainable.
0: So, with the monoculture, the way that my brain works or how it logically organizes in my brain, and once again, you tell me if I'm completely wrong, but if you're gonna have one type of crop, I assume. Tomatoes in this example. They're going to suck out certain types of nutrients from the topsoil, from the earth, and in a specific amount for tomatoes. Now, if you have beans or legumes or pumpkins or something else, they're also going to take nutrients, but they're going to take different nutrients or in different quantities. So, really, if you have only one type of crop, then you're going to deplete the land a lot faster because That specific nutrient that maybe is really needed in tomatoes is the first thing to go. Is that right?
1: Yeah. And this is one of the reasons why very often, I don't have the term in English to, uh, top of my mind, I have it in French, but it's the whole idea to say that once you've overexploited a parcel of land, you need to let it rest for a couple of years before you're able to plant again, because you need to give time for the soil to regenerate itself in a way. And and so the idea is to say, okay, maybe how can we treat the land in the first place where we don't need to put it at rest because it actually, it has found its optimum balance of function where it doesn't need to rest and that we're actually helping the soil regenerate itself as it's giving us those produce and giving us, you know, the bounty of the land. We're harvesting that while replenishing the soil. So it's kind of like, how do we create a symbiotic relationship between us and natural ecosystems rather than, you know, seeing humans as, okay, you know, we're kind of top of the pyramid and our job is to like, exploit resources and, you know, not really understand this symbiotic relationship that we have with other living organisms and the ecosystem. You know, we have to be stewards of the ecosystems rather than just in the environment as natural resources to be overexploited. We need to exploit them. We need to consume natural resources but how do we do it in a way where we give nature enough time to replenish itself because if we're overexploiting then we're not giving natural ecosystem the time to replenish in order to serve us better in a sense right so how do we find that right balance which has been very much destabilized in our way of producing food and that's the whole idea of how do we design society in a way that, you know, we can operate in in an interesting way within the limits of the biosphere and what it can hold in terms of, of capacity.
0: So in your research, in your work, what have you concluded? What are best practices? What are things that we can do this?
1: So I guess well, there are many angles to this question. The first thing, I mean, that's, again, something more personal, I would say, to my life's journey is when I was in Africa on this agricultural project, and I was seeing communities that have been living there for thousands of years that have a very, very rich culture. They might not have necessarily scientific knowledge, but they have a lot of wisdom. They are considered as Amongst the poorest people on earth from a kind of materialistic standpoint. But I found that in terms of their joy for life, they were very rich. They were very giving, very generous, so very welcoming. There was a lot of solidarity and there was a kind of joy of life that when I actually thought about it I would think about you know different instances in my own life when I was living in Dubai or you know friends and families here in Canada that you look around us and, and you say okay I mean these people live in, in very well off and you know all our basic needs are met in, in a very comfortable way but you know I mean we see what we sometimes call civilizational diseases if I can say which are things like you know mental depression and, and suicide and burnouts and I remember one time when I was in that village in, the, in Mali, the, the chief of the village, we were one evening around the, the campfire and, and he, was, he asked me a question. He, he felt kind of awkward asking me the question, but he said, is it true that you know, where you come from, there is this disease called suicide? That was the first time somebody framed it as a kind of disease. And I mean, all this to say that, so in my own personal journey, I've come to realize that, you know what, I don't need much to be happy or I need to try to not need much in order to be happy because if my happiness is going to be based on what I have rather than who I am, I might have some problems in my life. And so it really brought a lot of reflections on, you know, like my consumption habits and my own lifestyle. And where do I invest my money? What do I do with my money? Because as we know, $1 that we spend is a vote that we're voting for XYZ, whatever brand we're buying or whatever investment we're making. So how do I use my financial capital in a way that can generate positive impact in my own life in terms of my ultimate goal, which is being healthy and being happy and having time for my friends and my family, which is something that you talk a lot about on your channel and, and, you know, designing your lifestyle in a way that you can focus on on the things that matter. And so I would say that this whole thing about rethinking our overconsumption habits, but then, you know, as I was kind of like working on myself on these things and trying to have a much more simple lifestyle, I started realizing that, okay, wait a minute. Minute, I mean, it's a good thing where I can have a positive impact on the environment through my lifestyle. But you've got major multinationals, one of which I'm not going to point fingers or or play the blame game or anything. But very, I would say, objectively, you know, I work for Procter and Gamble, and when you have this kind of operations, obviously. You are bound to have some kind of negative impact on society and the environment. So these guys got to also think about these things and and they got to innovate their business models in order to integrate sustainability in the way that they do business. And so I became very interested about that. And so this is where I, I went on to do a PhD on looking at the interface between the private sector and society and sustainability and how do you work with private enterprises to develop their sustainability strategies. And so, this is what I do here at HEC at the research center where I work. I actually work with technological startups here in, in incubation and acceleration programs that we have. So, I work with entrepreneurs on their business models and to say, look, like this is your commercial strategy that's very interesting, but do you realize that whether you like it or not, your business is going to have some kind of impact on society or the environment, whether it's a positive impact? whether it's a negative impact, whether it's a direct impact, indirect impact on the short-term, on the long-term. Look, you got to look at these things. It's not about caring for the environment. It's not about a debate over morality or or ethics or whatever. It's a purely pragmatic, strategic business mindset. Because of course, if you're in the mindset of saying, I want to maximize profits, I want to milk the cow every three months, For sure, trying to develop a sustainability strategy in your business model and creating innovation and competitive advantage and differentiation, it's probably going to be a cost for you if your mindset is just every three months, maximum returns. However, if you're in the business of building a thriving company that's going to be here in 15, 20, 25 years, that's still going to be competitive, that's going to be amongst the top three in your industry, then working on social environmental issues is your opportunity to create that innovation, to set the standards and to transform the industry for you to be a first mover and to really kind of build that kind of enterprise that is in coherence with the challenges that we face in the 21st century. If you want to build an enterprise that is working as per 20th century context and reality, then go ahead, keep doing business as usual. If you want to build a new generation of enterprises, the time has never been so appropriate in 2022, right after the pandemic, where everybody from the public to the private to the community sector is talking about a more sustainable and more inclusive economic relaunch of the economy. So yeah, that's kind of where I've been through in my own reflections from the individual contribution to the business contribution and entrepreneurship.
0: It makes a lot of sense. And and I agree with a lot of what you said. I also think that What we've seen over the last couple of years really shows us like a deglobalization. And I think that permaculture is going to be more and more important, especially when we're discussing things like keeping things local and seasonal and not putting so much chemicals into the ground. And as we're seeing massive migration out of huge multi million person cities and into smaller communities and spreading out again, where people will be responsible for producing their own food. And it's not something where it's like, okay, I can just rape the land for a season or two and then that's it, you know, because. We talk so much about generational wealth, on putting together foundations, about putting together strategies, so not just your life or your kid's life, but your grandkids' life. So if you can do all of these types of things, and when you move overseas, having a community and you're taking care of that community and doing your part in it, I think that there's a lot to be said for that. The other part that I wanted to comment on was I've traveled quite extensively through Africa, and I definitely have to agree with you. Yes, in Material belongings, there is a lot of poverty there, but you'll never see bigger smiles on someone's face than traveling through Africa. I mean, I sit on the board of directors for a nonprofit in Uganda. They have been some of the happiest, most generous people I've ever met in my life when I traveled down there. I remember even going to North Africa to Morocco when I was 19 years old and going down for two months and I even went to Algeria on a camel. It took me three days to go from Morocco to Algeria on a camel through the Sahara. And we were finding these little tiny villages and the people had no material belongings, but they were the happiest, most generous, sweet people you've ever met in your whole life. They would invite you in for a cup of tea, wouldn't even speak the language, but just sit there and smile and try to pantomime and communicate. And they were just so thrilled to meet someone, and it was just an amazing experience. So, there are different types of wealth. I will fully, fully, fully agree with that statement. Big announcement we have launched Expat Money Summit. I am so excited. You know, this is something that I've wanted to do for several years now, but the timing was just never quite right. But now it is, our team is growing. I think we've got about 10 people who are part of the Expat Money team now. So I've got a lot of support. I got a lot of help that's gonna help me put this on. But this year's event is gonna be absolutely massive. Like I can't stress this enough. This event is going to be a complete game changer. Every other summit is going to pale in comparison to this one. Other companies are gonna look at our summit as a model on how to successfully run an offshore summit. We are gonna eat everybody's lunch. It's gonna be epic slash hilarious. You know why? Because the summit is free. Normally, people charge thousands of dollars for this types of information, but I thought, you know what, I want to put it out there for free to as many people as possible because the information is so necessary. I need people to get this stuff. I need to try to help as many people as possible. So what I ask in return is your support. What you can do is go to expatmoneysummit.com. You can get yourself a free ticket. Then share the shit out of this all over social media. If you have an email newsletter or if you have friends who might be interested in this stuff, then send it to them too. We got to get the word out. The goal here is 30,000 attendees. That's what I'm hoping for. It's a lofty goal. I won't lie with you. It's a lofty goal, but this summit is going to be unbelievable. It's going to be a complete game changer and we're going to help so many people. So I need your support. Go to expatmoneysummit.com, get yourself a free ticket and then share it with as many people as possible to raise awareness. We have so many amazing speakers from around the world. I think we have over 30 speakers at this point during our five-day conference. I'm so excited. That's all I can say. I'm just so, so excited. I hope you guys are too. I hope I can count on you for all of your support. expatmoneysummit.com. And yeah, let's do it.
1: You said something that I've been thinking a lot recently, which is this whole, I would say, approach, or or I would say even movement to a certain extent of relocalizing the economy, which is interesting as we've been talking from a sustainability standpoint. But I'm also, you know, going through two years of pandemic, looking at how global supply chains have been impacted and, and destabilized. And I think that there's been kind of some kind of like... I wouldn't say awakening, but we've come to realize that, okay, wait a minute, like I'm so dependent on systems and individuals or or, or groups that, you know, are completely kind of like on the other side of the planet. How do I build resilience, building local resilience to say that, okay, you know, how can we prepare ourselves to other shocks whether they're you know economic shocks whether they're environmental or social or political and uh, to be able to to better you know kind of local resilience it doesn't necessarily mean being disconnected from a global world but if we're able to to better design and develop our our local systems, then we can better get into kind of like exchanges with other territories and in in other regions. So, and then with this, it ties in with the whole libertarian approach, right? How can we nurture freedom while at the same time nurturing solidarity? That those two things, which I, I think is where we are at as a society, thinking around these things, it's a big challenge. We don't have the answers uh, already written down. It's a lot of experimentation. It's uh, a lot of trial and error, being able to learn from the initiatives and projects and things that we put in place. Yeah, and this is where permaculture I find is interesting because so I, I was talking about the agricultural aspect of permaculture. But then permaculture is not just agriculture. It touches on tools and technology. So how do we tap into technology? How do we use technology in a sustainable way? There's also this movement around low technologies. So technologies that we as individuals can easily appropriate ourselves and can kind of maybe more easily develop while we're trying to look at these local solutions for more sustainable way of organizing ourselves. Permaculture is also about education. So for example, I have a six-year-old and we're homeschooling him. So I see homeschooling, for instance, as a kind of a permaculture mindset adapted, you know, applied to education. So rethinking education, rethinking health and spiritual well-being, rethinking also finances and economics, uh, whether it is as an entrepreneur or even our own personal finances. And this is something that you do so amazingly on your channel. How do we think about governance? You know, how do we organize ourselves from a governance standpoint as local communities, you know? So, you know, we're kind of not too happy when government intervenes too much in our lives, right? We've seen this through through the pandemic, especially here in Canada, believe me. And so how do we think around, you know, governance and again, you know, this whole kind of more political aspect. And here it touches upon libertarian thinking and uh, anarchism and, and different political schools of thought that can inspire us to to rethink politics. And finally, land and nature stewardship through not just agriculture, but also eco-construction. So I'm very much someone who's very passionate, for example, about earthships, which is a a technology, a way of doing agriculture that's been developed by Michael Reynolds in the the US, uh, in, in the area of Nevada. And Utah, which is building with recycled material and tires and, you know, how to build self-sustainable habitats that can help individuals and and communities thrive while, again, being sustainable from an environmental uh, standpoint. So permaculture is really all of that, right? So it's it's a toolbox that will bring us different tools and potential solutions on these different aspects, these different dimensions of what it means to organize ourselves as a society.
0: So much to break down there. And I just love it when you start talking about the educational aspect as well, because I have two children and we homeschool our kids. My daughter is almost six years old and she's homeschooled. And I believe so much in education. Not only do I put out this podcast and a newsletter and a ton of other type of free resources, because I'm trying to constantly help educate and bring some of the brightest minds in different industries who can help drive freedom home, that I actually went out there and created a business based around the homeschooling model. And it's called Expat International School. And it's specifically made for international families when they move overseas, because I saw it as a massive problem in the education space where the local schools didn't work and the international schools also pretty much didn't work. I mean, you might find every once in a while something that's decent, but as a general rule, they're not a viable solution either, especially when families are moving from one country to another country and then you're uprooting the children. You know, you've moved a lot in your life, so have I. So having a viable option for that and then doing it in a way where the kids are going to be learning so much about the environment and about nature and getting their hands dirty and going back to old technology. Like, for example, I have had a recent guest on the show. I can pretty much come forward at this point and say, Patrick Hebert and I will be building communities together. And he was a recent guest on the show. And it's all about sustainable communities in Latin America. And one of the first projects that we'll be doing is in Panama. And we're going to be doing a joint venture where I'll be bringing this school into the community and we'll have a physical location for the school. And with that, we'll be on these hobby farms that we're doing, the kids will be involved. So they'll learn about the growth cycle. They'll learn about how to produce food. They'll learn about solar and water and processing and all of these types of things. Because I think it's so, so important. The connection that people have with their food, especially, I'm almost 40 years old. The connection that I had food when I was a child was basically like, meat came on a little styrofoam packet and vegetable came already cleaned and and shiny and ready to go. Like I didn't have this type of experience, but going forward in society, I think that we do have to have a stronger relationship with where food comes from. And part of that will be educating the children in a way that is going to make sense. So I'm fully on board what you just said
1: That's right. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So the the whole educational aspect is definitely something that, uh, very passionate about inspires me a lot because we got to rethink education. We got to rethink education. The current system, in my view, is, is, is is broken to, to many regards, especially here in Quebec. And I just don't see the current educational system preparing our kids for what's to come for the rest of the, the rest of the century, upcoming decades. And we got to learn with them on how to be more resilient. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, anyways, that could be eventually for another discussion, but maybe some a couple of last points, which are, I think are important to pinpoint about permaculture. Well, the first thing is, I didn't mention it when I was defining the term itself, but it actually started in Australia in the 1970s by Bill Mollison and David Holmgren, which are considered kind of the two founding fathers of permaculture design. And these guys, basically, they're farmers and anthropologists, and they spent many years traveling the world, meeting with local uh, indigenous communities, whether in Australia, Asia, South America, Africa. And they realized that despite these cultures, these communities being disconnected from one another, they had similar understanding on on how to grow food in symbiosis with the natural environment. And so they kind of teased out these principles and these techniques, and they kind of encapsulated it in this package called permaculture design. So they didn't actually invent permaculture, they basically innovated the way that it was structured and and communicated based on ancestral knowledge. And then they started a really kind of... uh, They actually put in place the Permaculture Design Certificate, the PDC, which has become kind of an international design certificate that I highly recommend to anyone who wants to explore permaculture. The best way is... Go to your local permaculture group, and they can definitely point you to the PDC program, which is a great program and it's very much standardized across the world. and of course, the best way is to actually work on a permaculture farm. And again, and the three ethics of permaculture is care for the planet, care for the people, and sharing profit in an equitable manner. so fair share. So it's the three p's people planet and profit and it comes with 12 principles which are basically inspired from the way that ecosystems function so you know the fa- the importance of o- observing your environment before you actually take an action or favoring for example what they call edges so you know you'd have a forest and you'd have a wetland where those two ecosystems meet, that edge there, that's where you have the more diversity and, and where uh, things thrive the most. And so if we transpose that principle to our society, which is ever more so polarized, it's like, no, we got to kind of create those social edges where people come together despite and beyond their differences and, and creating together in this diversity, you know, this is where we can thrive. So there's a lot of interesting principles that nature teaches us that we can actually transpose in the way that we design design. design societies and communities. And so these are kind of the couple of points I just wanted to add on uh, to, to permaculture.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that what you've just said and what you were saying earlier about how humans organize themselves, how people are governed or govern themselves, and how this fits together. To community and how we design new communities, I think is so important because I think that the trend and, and probably one of the largest trends that we'll see over the next decade or two is a complete reorganization of, of how people interact and how people behave in, in groups. I think that humans are humans, but I think that we're going to see a giant fracturing of these massive nation states. And I think it's really important. And that's what I'm spending a massive amount of time learning about and exploring and networking in is people who are setting up communities and doing it in more sustainable and ecological ways and doing it in peaceful and prosperous ways that fall in line with my belief systems as a libertarian. I also wanted to mention that one of the main reasons that I left the UAE was because there was no way that we were ever going to be able to sustain ourselves in that country. Pretty much all of the water is from desalination. They produce a very tiny minuscule amount of food, but basically everything is brought in and it's all done on the back of the oil industry. Now I have no problem with the oil industry. I think it's very necessary in the world right now. Yes, it would be great if we could have electric cars and stuff, but I think that that's just not a reality at this point. So that's fine. I, I'm not saying anything about the oil industry. What I have a problem with is that if the electricity goes out for a day and it's 55 degrees Celsius and you don't have your air conditioning running there, you're going to cook. And even if you're growing food, that's going to all turn off. So when we started looking for a new home, we were looking at a place which would fit in with my belief patterns, our belief patterns, and was going to be fully sustainable from a water standpoint and from a food standpoint. And that's why it was two of the really big things or three of the really big things that why we chose Panama. I mean, this is a food independent country. We produce a massive amount of food. It's volcanic soil here. You could grow just about anything here. It rains Almost every day, or at least in the rainy season, I mean, we get tons of fresh water. There's just so much to be said about living in a place which properly supports humans opposed to living out in the desert. Now, I once again, don't get me wrong, I loved my time when I was in the UAE, and I'm very grateful for the country and the community. And as an expat home, I thought it was great. But at some point, I just thought, this is too risky. And when you're talking about the globalization and the supply chain issues, which we're seeing today... Imagine being in a place where you have only one commodity to trade. That's very, very worrying when you're always going to be dependent on somebody else or another culture or another community or another country and their government. That just makes me way too nervous. So I had to get out. So we relocated our whole family over here. And so far, very, very happy after three years of being here. And I feel secure knowing that we can produce food.
1: Yeah, I mean that's uh, very interesting, Mikael. What you what you bring to the discussion, and it, it just made me think of of three different things. The, the first thing is again the importance of realizing the the the, the how fundamental self sufficiency. And some degree of autonomy is important moving forward in the kind of global context that we're going to be facing in the coming years. A lot of like uncertainty, a lot of disruption for many different reasons. And again, how can we develop as much autonomy as possible for ourselves, our families, and and, and our community, our loved ones, and and where it is that we want to establish ourselves. And actually, I also have family in Panama. My cousin has been there for many years now. And it it was kind of also the same thinking, you know, she grew up in in Lebanon with all the uncertainty that comes with being from that country. And and at some point, you kind of start thinking about the basics. It's the way I I kind of feel that what we're touching, upon together today is really a kind of back to basics that uh, kind of need to be secured. But, you know, how can we do that again? Not in a too much hyper individualistic way. Yes, in a way that protects our individual freedoms, but enables us also to, to build community. And it starts with, okay. Where is the ecosystem that is kind of the optimum in terms of food production, water, fresh air to, to breathe? It's it's funny because it's kind of like, that's where we are at uh, at this crossroads, right? And obviously Panama and then the whole uh, Central America there uh, is, is a very interesting uh, region from, from that
0: standpoint. Okay. So we've talked a lot about the theory and the history and where this came from. And I Think that people would have a very firm understanding after the last two years why this is so important. And that really resonated with me, your statement on going back to basics, because I fully believe that as well. But let's get into some concrete things. Like my listener, they wake up tomorrow and they want to make changes in their life to be more sustainable, to take more responsibility for themselves in this manner. You know, what are some concrete things that they can actually put in their lives?
1: So for me, really, The first thing that we can do that can really generate an impact is, again, to really see that dollar that we're going to spend as us voting for something. And to be honest with you, for me, I'm kind of, you know, I'm over voting for products and services that obviously are not of quality, but... You know, they could be of excellent quality, but if behind that product or service, I understand that it's provided to me on the backs of child labor, or on the back of destroying uh, ecosystems, on the back of all these environmental and social issues that that we we see more than ever and that we understand more than ever, I, I make an ethical decision to say, "Look, this is where I draw the line." On top of it, the interesting thing is, if on the contrary, I invest that one dollar at a local producer, at the local moms and pops shop, at the local farmer, I know where my money is going. I know who it's benefiting. I know it's benefiting my neighbor. I know his family. I know his kids. And I know I'm helping him sustain a life for himself and his family. So that's what I want to vote for. It might not be you know, necessarily the product or service that no, has the optimum quality, or there might be a, a, other products that I'm going to buy from, uh, I don't know, Amazon or whatever. But the idea is to say there is more than just the product or the service itself. It's what impact is that money that I'm spending? What ripple effect is it having beyond just the product or service? And I think that's important. And today, more than ever, we have the information to make those conscious decisions. And at the same time, by investing in the local economy, It's just making everybody more resilient at the local level so that when the, you know, if a next pandemic comes or a next, you know, inflation, I mean, just look at inflation. So, even from an economic standpoint, very often more and more, it makes more sense to buy local and, and to invest in the local economy. So, I mean, for me, that's a kind of an, it's become at least for me, a no brainer that I want to spend my money revitalizing our local economies. So, that's one thing. So, you know, where we spend our money. Very concrete example of that. So now we have actually moved out of the city where we have bought a house with a piece of land that we want to grow food. Of course, we don't pretend to say we're going to consume 100% of our food from what we grow, but whatever it is, 20%, right? And the, the cool thing about it is that as we're growing food, then that's kind of part of my son's homeschooling curriculum. Because... He's going to learn to grow food, something that I never got the chance to do. So homeschooling also is another way that, again, I'm not saying that, you know, you're going to take your your kids out of school tomorrow morning and start homeschooling them, but it's something that you can start looking at and and seeing there's a lot of advantages to doing that.
0: I'll chime in and say... Pull your kids out of public education immediately. It's absolutely toxic. If you don't want to go on record saying it, I will happily go on record saying he it. said it. Get your kids out <laughs> of public education. It is the absolute worst spot for them. What they're learning is so toxic and it's just alienating children from themselves, from the community, from the family, everything. It is a horrible environment, homeschooling, mentorship. Learning from people who have done things, co-ops, homeschooling co-ops. This is what we're doing here in Panama. We run a homeschooling co-op with a lot of kids. That's beautiful. Sorry to interrupt you, but get your kids out of public education for sure.
1: He said it, you guys. But yeah, I mean, again, you you just mentioned co-ops, you know, get involved in a co-op or buy the products and services of a co-op. There is a big movement here in Quebec of B Corps benefit corporations. So private for-profit startups that are saying, you know what, you know, we're in it for the business, we want to generate profit, but we've got a social or environmental impact mission. And so, you know, let's support these guys. Yeah so as i was mentioning so we started growing our food uh, homeschooling uh, we're also part of community supported agriculture system where we buy from local producers that uh, we get our weekly basket at a drop off point so we're part of that to support the local farmer and then we go to the farm with our boy to uh, as a kind of uh, educational uh, activity right to visit the farmer and so our boy knows who's growing his food and and so on and so forth get involved honestly why not into local municipal politics. For me, from a political standpoint, for me, the future of politics is the municipal level. That's where things need to happen. That's that's where things happen. That's where things happen that impact our lives directly. And I'm all, you know, for this devolution of power from the federal and the provincial down to the municipal. We got to give power back to the municipal level and get involved at at that level. You know, whether you want to run for office at the municipal level or you want to hold your elected officials accountable for what's going on at the local level. Put pressure on them and, 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 you know, make them accountable for what's going on in your community at the local level. That's kind of like the political approach, if I would say, to, to this idea of permaculture. Explore other Diets, I would say. Again, you know, I'm not going to be there lecturing about uh, vegetarian or veganism or whatever. But being curious about deconstructing the way we've been taught about what what health is about, deconstructing that, and reconstructing it with, of course, the scientific school of thought. But also exploring other things that, you know, have been proven to to work for thousands of years from ancestral knowledge and and, and these things, you know, I mean, not being stuck in this kind of like unidimensional way of understanding our world and really kind of like opening up our minds about other ways and, and finding our own mix, you know, and not being getting stuck in ideologies but rather kind of nourishing ourselves from from different things and, and designing our own way of, of being and doing that fits with our own aspirations and that of our families. And so again, you know, being a lot, you know, not being afraid of risk. And, and obviously your audience are, are really good at that because, you know, a very adventurous audience. And so again, you know, maybe I'm not, uh, I'm kind of deviating from very specific things and being more kind of like philosophical, but uh, yeah, have your chickens, have chickens.
0: I think this is a great start. And I think that the trend that we're going to see in the future, or the trend that I am betting on, is much smaller communities, which are a lot more self-governing. And you know everybody who's involved. You know everybody who, you know your neighbors and participating with your neighbors, whether that be Growing chickens and trading eggs and barter, or someone has a specialized service or skill that they can help you with, and you do something in exchange for that using different forms of monetary, whether that be cryptocurrency or precious metals or something I don't even know right now, but not always relying on federal backed currencies. Getting to know everybody in your community, I think, is so super important. Like when you say get into politics, I mean, I'm massively against large bloated federal institutions. But if we're going to talk about politics in a community of a couple of hundred people, and it's not about a giant power grab or power over people, but helping you to organize, that's something that I I can see is important. I mean, people probably listening to this show know that I'm government of any fashion. I am pretty steadfast against, but there doesn't have to be government. I, I got to watch here. This is about a bit of a slippery slope because I'm, you know, I'm against the state, but I'm not against community. I'm not against being friends with my neighbors or organizing ourselves in different ways. It just has to be done in an honest and ethical way. And I think that when it gets into such a large scale, it has no choice but to fall apart. I just don't think that you can have any type of organization with millions upon millions upon millions of people involved. We need things. It needs to be a decentralization of power. It needs to be spread out. And I think that permaculture will play a very important part of the responsibility to make sure that these communities last more than just a few months or a few years, but forever. So I think that your tips are very good. And I think that there's a lot that we can explore in all of those types of things.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, again, um, to be more precise, when I mentioned politics, I definitely did not mean getting into the politics that we see as a media show, but politics in the sense of direct democracy. And it makes me think of a very interesting book that was written in the 1970s by a famous economist, Schumacher, the title of the book is Small is Beautiful. And, and he was a firm believer that, you know, in, in local human scale, communities where people can actually have power over their destiny over their lives they can and and find and strike that balance between individual liberties and being able to form a cohesive community that finds an optimum way of organizing itself on the long term and again you know the idea for me behind permaculture design is that it's a toolbox that can help you to have, I would say, the philosophy of this kind of vision, but also very practical Tools that can be applied where this can materialize in a certain uh, on a certain territory. Yeah. So very very pleased, uh, Mikhail, to have had the chance to unpack this with you this afternoon. As I was mentioning to you before the talk, I haven't had the chance to to have this kind of very kind of informal discussion with somebody that I don't really know around permaculture. I haven't had this opportunity for a while. I've been very much into my academic stuff, so it's I was really looking forward to it, and it really met my needs in terms of voicing that and being able to exchange together like that.
0: Amazing. Last thing I just want to put out there is we're doing a ton of research these days on DAOs, on decentralized autonomous organizations. And I think that that is going to play a huge part in how we start organizing ourselves. So I think that we're going to have to do a ton of episodes on that and and try to uncover many different aspects of this, of living overseas and building fresh communities from scratch. I just don't think that there is a way that we're going to be able to change the system that's already there especially at the federal level i think it's all about leaving and rebuilding you know we had john bush on the show to talk about the exit and build land summit that he held about freedom cells you know we're doing a lot in this direction so i hope that you guys enjoyed today's conversation joey if my listeners want to get a hold of you if they want to find out more about what you do where can we send them
1: so my linkedin page joseph El so that's where I'm most these days, I'm kind of disconnecting from Facebook. Otherwise, also my email, joseph at elkourie.info. And that's uh, pretty much it. And maybe one last point, Mikhail, as I was mentioning, I have my cousin, she lives in Panabas, so she's been at it, telling me, look, you guys need to come down, you need to visit, so hopefully I'll definitely buzz you up. If I'm down there at some point in the near future, I would be very happy to get to meet in person, check out all the beautiful work that you do there, especially the educational co-op, and continue our discussion around decentralizing and building community from the ground up.
0: I love it. And we met through your uncle, who's a subscriber of mine. So big shout out to your uncle.
1: To Andre Fortier, my uh, uncle, who's a big inspiration to me, a very big libertarian who's been inspiring me tremendously. Big shout out to Andre and thank you for having hooked us up and Mikael and I.
0: Thanks so much, Joey. I'll talk to you soon. Take
1: care. Bye-bye.
0: Okay, what an amazing interview today. I hope you guys got a lot of knowledge, a lot of inspiration and really learned something new. If you guys have kids or grandkids or nieces or nephews or neighbors or anybody who is not agreeing with what's happening in the school systems today, if they have a international flavor, if they are digital nomads or want to be digital nomads, if they're expats or international families homeschooling, world schooling, etc., 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 then I want you guys to check out our brand new program and expat school Io. That's right, expatschool.io. This is an amazing program that i built with my very good friend, Michael Strong. He was actually a guest on episode 115 of the podcast back, what's that, a year or so ago, and we've been working hard since we met to build this school. He has a background in education. He's actually been doing curriculum design for over 30 years for Montessori programs, and he's a published author, and his experience in education is just amazing unbelievable. So I think that I really chose the best partner possible on planet Earth for this. The full name of the school is Expat International School of Freedom and Entrepreneurship. So we're going to have a strong emphasis on programs and skills and abilities that will actually enable your child to build something, to be creative, to use their hands, to add value to the world, which is really what this show is all about. There's gonna be second languages, there's going to be things like blockchain technology. I mean, actually get your kids prepared for what's happening in the world. You're gonna give them a massive advantage over every other family out there. So. As you can see, I am really excited about this. I hope you guys get a chance to take a look It's at expatschool.io. You can sign up for our free newsletter to make sure that you stay in touch with us and hear about all the new news. And if it makes sense for your kids, if you have kids that are between the ages of 8 to 19, then schedule a call with us. We'll all sit down and go through the program and see if it makes sense for you and your family. That's it. Go to expatschool.io, and I will see you next Wednesday on the podcast